Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Sophie Joubert, a PhD student at MIT. We'll be talking about Sophie's background transitioning from medicine to philosophy, her doctoral research on the ethics of influencing the behavior of others, and her thoughts and experiences on the teaching side of things. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Sophie, you can email her at sjaber at mit.edu. And you can read more about Sophie's research on our website, www.sophiejaber.com. Sophie Jaber, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Hi, thanks for having me. So what was the first class that you took in philosophy? Uh, the first class that I took in philosophy was taught by a woman named Catherine Waring um, at my undergrad institution, which was Wellesley College. And I believe it was an intro to metaphysics and epistemology class, actually. Right. And is that what you went into college wanting to study, philosophy? Well, I would say not at all. But actually, I believe on my college applications, I wrote that I wanted to be a bioethicist, <laughs> which is a very strange thing to know about, uh, at least in the States at that time. And I think it probably actually came from watching shows like House. Have you ever mm, seen that? Great show. Yeah, where there are lots of uh, ethical conundrums. And I was very interested in that. And I, I was planning to go to medical school, actually. And so I had heard that you know, it would be a good idea to major in something not in the sciences while you're in college, because it was kind of your biggest opportunity to do something like that. And so philosophy interested me and, and that's where it all started. Great. And obviously you're, I think, coming to the end of your PhD in, in philosophy, uh, obviously with this, you know, bioethical interest in the background. Do you still think that uh, going for philosophy grad school, as you inevitably did, do you think it was the best choice relative to maybe med school? Hmm. <laughs> I think it depends on what day you ask me that, actually. <laughs> but most of the time, I think, yes, it was a good choice. I think, given just my interests and, and the things I like to think about, philosophy is, is better suited to me for that. Have you got any bioethics projects on, on the go nowadays? Yes, I do a couple. So one is that I'm working with some folks that I knew from the bioethics fellowship program that I did before going to grad school. I'm working with them on a survey project. So we're surveying American bioethicists on uh, their views on various bioethical issues. So we've we've completed the survey and, and we're working on sort of data analysis and, and writing some of that up. And then the other thing is that I will soon be going uh, to ANU actually in Australia for about a month to be a visitor there. And while I'm there, I'm going to work on a project that sort of applies some of my dissertation work on manipulation to questions in bioethics that originally got me interested in that subject. Oh, so exciting. Uh, how, how did that come about, the opportunity to um, well, go all the way to Australia to visit? Yeah, well, so they're offering a program. I'm going to butcher the name, but I, it's something like the Early Career Women visitor program. <laughs> so basically, the idea is to bring early career women, either late stage graduate students or junior professors to be visitors at their institution and just be a part of the intellectual community and work on some research. 
Does that come with funding to go and do that? Is that something that comes as part of the package? Or to be a visiting student elsewhere, yeah. do you have to be applying in, in your own home university to, to get that kind of funding? So I don't know anything about how it works to be a visitor for sort of a longer period of time. I know some people in my program have done that for, say, a semester at a different institution. For this program, they pay for your airfare and your accommodation while you're there. Um, wow. And that's all funded by, by ANU. Wow. Wow, sounds like yeah. a fantastic program. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> Great. And and sort of uh, transitioning to you know your research, you mentioned uh, that you were serving a bunch of bioethicists' views as one of your sort of bioethics projects on the go. Obviously, today we're interested in talking about your views. So I guess I'll just ask, you know, what's your doctoral research about? What's the sort of overall topic of your thesis? So first, I should say that at MIT, we don't write book style dissertations. So this is a a sort of divide in PhD programs that some of them, you write a book style dissertation where you write several chapters on the same topic. At other places, you write three papers, which are article length, and uh, they're loosely connected on a theme. So my program does the three papers approach. And so my papers the sort of theme has to do with the limits of what we can do to influence other people's behavior, especially when they are not reasoning well about what to do. So that happens in a, there are various ways in which the the research relates to that. So one of the projects that I have is about the ethics of manipulation and another is about the ethics of paternalism. So intervening with people's behavior for their own good. And then in uh, the third paper of my dissertation, I'm thinking more about foundational issues. So the question of where our rights against interference come from in the first place um, and how they relate to the the quality of our reasoning. Right. Very interesting. I'm interested to hear, I guess, then re- with those first two projects of yours, what the difference is? What's the difference between manipulation and paternalistic intervention? So I think the difference is basically that paternalistic interference could be manipulation or it could be other things like you could paternalistically coerce someone or you could paternalistically lie to them and so on. So not all paternalism is manipulative. And then also not all manipulation is paternalistic because you might manipulate someone for your own ends and not to get them to do something that's better for them. Right. So you've mentioned a few different kinds of intervention there. So you've got manipulation. You've also got things like um, lying and and coercion as well. And I guess what you're trying to do in your project then is figure out under what kinds of conditions these these are are permissible, or if they're always impermissible, then then why? On that theme, so what do the conditions for each of those type of intervention look like for manipulation, lying, coercion, and maybe a, a more gentle paternalistic intervention that's in the interest of the paternalizee? Are they the same kinds of conditions that determine whether it's permissible or impermissible in each case? And do they differ by degree? Or are there different kinds of conditions that determine the uh, permissibility in each of those kinds of cases? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think any answer is going to be a substantive philosophical commitment. So I'm not exactly sure. But so one thing to say is that there are questions about how to distinguish these different kinds of influence. And then there are questions about when each kind of influence is wrong, if ever, and when it's morally permissible. I'm more interested in the latter, but I do have some views about the former. So the way that I 
sort of like to think about the terrain is that you can influence people to act differently by changing the options that are available to them, giving them new reasons to act in certain ways or not to act in other ways. So I can tell you, you must go to graduate school or I will, I don't know, kidnap your child. (laughs) (laughs) And I've just given you a very good reason to go to graduate school, namely that you can avoid having your child kidnapped. (laughs) So you can do that to try to get people to change their behavior. That would be an, an instance of coercion, but you can also make offers or incentivize people. Um, and that would be another way of generating reasons for them. So I could say, if you go to graduate school, I'll pay you a bunch of money. I've just given you a reason to go. So that's on on one side, giving people new reasons to act or changing the way that their options actually are. And then on the other side, you have changing how they reason about their given options. So you're not changing what's available to them, but you're changing the way that they think about it. And so here, I think uh, this is where sort of persuasion and manipulation fall in. So then there's questions about what the different standards are for when something like coercion or incentives is wrong and when something like manipulation or maybe even persuasion would be wrong. And I think a lot of people would think the conditions are very different. I think possibly they all share something in common, but not entirely sure uh, what that's going to be. I tend to favor views on which the wrongness of something like manipulation or coercion is actually reducible to the wrongness of something else, of infringing some other right. And so in that way, there might be a common answer, but I don't have settled views about that. Right. And so you mentioned the idea of rights and how those could be implicated in trying to determine what makes, I guess, paternalism in general wrong. One point of opposition one might have is just, you know, taking the kind of crude consequentialist view where, you know, it's just if we can influence other people and that has good consequences, why not do that? What's the difference between, you know, interfering with someone for their own good where that, you know, let's say maximizes the the overall good and interfering with someone else where that maximizes the overall good? What's, you know, why does it matter where we locate the goodness of our intervention? Hmm. Well, so I will say I sometimes describe myself as a recovering consequentialist. (laughs) So (laughs) before I came to graduate school, I probably would have said I was a consequentialist and I would have thought about questions like paternalism or even manipulation in consequentialist terms. The views that I have about manipulation are actually consistent with consequentialism, although I do believe in things like rights and duties, and I do speak in those terms. So I'm still sort of hedging in that I'm I'm at a place where I'm making sure that all of the views I commit to are still consistent with consequentialism (laughs) in case I I later decide to go back. But so my my views about paternalism incorporate some of my consequentialist commitments in that I think that when it's justified, it's justified because we have very strong duties to help the person that we're interfering with. And the consequentialist is going to say something sort of similar, which is that it's justified when the benefits outweigh the costs. Maybe some kind of consequentialist would want to say that it's justified when the benefits to the person outweigh the costs to the person, as opposed to the benefits to the overall good. But I'm not entirely sure about that. 
And so to follow up on that, I guess the most famous person to talk about paternalism, the most famous philosopher, was also probably one of the more devoted anti-paternalists, you might think, and also one of the most famous consequentialists, right? So John Stuart Mill believed that we could, you know, go against paternalism precisely on consequentialist grounds. So, I mean, I, I'd assume you could help yourself to, to those arguments, maybe. Possibly, although I think it's very contested what what he thought in, in that he makes some claims that it's it's very unclear how you could justify those claims on consequentialist grounds. Mm. Some of his claims about paternalism are the ones that interest me most. So he has a couple of famous cases. So he's got a case where someone is about to cross a bridge that is unsafe, and they don't know that. And John Stuart Mill, despite being very anti-paternalistic, believes that you could stop them from crossing the bridge using physical force even just long enough to inform them about the bridge's unsafety, and then you would have to let them go if they still wanted to go. So that's a case in which the person is lacking some crucial piece of information, and that's why he thinks you're allowed to interfere. He has some other cases that suggest he thinks that also if the person's reasoning is very impaired, then you might also be able to interfere. So nowadays, we might think about cases where someone is going to harm themselves and they're impaired due to intoxication or perhaps certain kinds of mental health crises. And people think that those two conditions, being ill-informed and being impaired, might make it easier to justify intervening paternalistically on someone's behalf. So those questions are the questions that drive my work on paternalism. The, The basic question being, why is it easier to justify in those cases? Right. I wonder then with some of these questions, particularly those pertaining to you know, maybe when, when people are reasoning poorly and whether that can justify us in intervening in some respect, whether or not this can have payoffs in other areas of philosophy as well. And in particular, you know, the, the bioethics and medical ethics that you were very interested in previously and you also have projects going on in that sphere right now. Do you see a kind of intersection there? And uh, are you working on bringing those thoughts together? Uh, Yeah, I am. I do see the intersection. That's actually what got me interested in questions like manipulation and paternalism. So around the time that I went to this bioethics fellowship, which was about 2016, 2016 to 2018, there was a very popular kind of literature in uh, bioethics and philosophy focused on the ethics of nudging. I don't know if you're familiar with nudging. So the way I think about nudging is that it falls into that that category of influence where you change how people reason about what to do um, rather than changing their options. And there was a lot of sort of psychology research, research in behavioral economics, suggesting that there were all kinds of ways that we could influence people's behavior in this way. And then there were a bunch of people in philosophy reacting and worrying that these things were manipulative. So this happened, especially in the public health literature, public health ethics literature, where People were worried about certain kinds of behavioral public policies that employ nudges. So, for example, organ donation is a classic example. So studies show, and who knows if the studies really check out, they might be fall prey to the replication crisis. But (laughs) people thought, and maybe still think, that by switching the default in your organ donation system so that everybody in the country by default is registered as an organ donor, unless they opt out, as opposed to the kind of system we have in the US, which is forced choice, where when you get a driver's license, you have to choose and there is no default. Um, If you make the default that everyone 
is an organ donor, then many more people will just remain organ donors. And so that would be a sort of nudge. And then the worry would be, is this wrongfully manipulative of people? And the sort of dominant view of wrongful manipulation is that you wrongfully manipulate someone when you make their reasoning worse. And so then the question becomes, you know, when you choose some option because it's the default, is that a form of bad reasoning or good reasoning? And and that's sort of where the question gets settled. I wonder if that um, dominant view would... uh... Well, I guess have some some quite strong implications. I mean, if we look at something like advertising, right, marketing, it, it seems that's not really leading you to uh, reason in a very good way. Would that dominant view render advertising immoral? Well, so I worry about this a lot. I think that it would render a lot of it immoral. And this is something that I think is a huge problem for the view, which is that it has to say the same things about the same mechanisms of influence across different contexts. So if you're going to use a certain way of making people's reasoning worse, and you're going to use that as, say, a car company advertising cars, or you're going to use that as a pharmaceutical company advertising something, or you're going to use that as, you know, the government. <laughs> you're going to have to say that all of that is either wrongfully manipulative or not. And even in interpersonal cases, you're going to have to to say the same thing about making someone's reasoning worse, whether you are, say, their friend or their doctor or someone who's engaging in a business negotiation with them, all of these things are going to have to be treated the same. And so this is one of the, the problems I see for the the main view and what drives me toward my own view, which at least purports to account for these differences better. Right. So where your doctoral research is obviously based is in MIT, um, a very prestigious and very research-orientated uh, college in the US. How much teaching opportunities do you have as a graduate student at MIT? Yeah, so compared to some institutions, especially big public universities like Michigan or Berkeley, we have very few teaching opportunities. Even in comparison to a place like Harvard, we have fewer teaching opportunities because MIT promises its undergrads that they will only be taught by people with PhDs. So we actually cannot teach our own classes as graduate students, whereas you can teach certain kinds of classes by yourself at Harvard before you have a PhD. And the reason you get more experience at places like uh, Berkeley or Michigan is that the class sizes are much bigger. And because they just have higher teaching demand, you can stay for more years in graduate school being funded as a TA or as someone teaching your own class. So we definitely have fewer overall teaching experiences available to us than, than certain other universities. But about the teaching experiences you've had, do you remember what it was like to teach your first class? Was there anything you were sort of nervous about? Oh, sure. I mean, I think the first time I was a TA, I, I definitely made sure to wear my glasses in every interaction with my student, hoping for <laughs> one of those nudges that <laughs> would make them <laughs> perceive me as maximally intelligent. <laughs> so, yeah, do I remember the first time? I mean, I will say my program does throw us into to our experience TAing without a lot of guidance. So I've, I've gotten a lot of training in how to teach from MIT's teaching and learning lab and also from experiences that I've had teaching through other programs at MIT that have to do with uh, the ethics of technology and through programs at Harvard along those lines. So I think my main reaction when I first started was just not being sure of what I was doing. But I think the more that you start thinking of it as sort of leading a discussion, which is what we're doing as as uh, TAs, 
at MIT is we're, we're leading discussion sections that occur after the lectures. It becomes much more natural, I think, for me and for a lot of my peers. You mentioned some of um, those other teaching experiences that you've had, I think, at, at Harvard as well. You mentioned to us beforehand that you've, um, well, well, despite perhaps the lack of opportunities that you would get directly at MIT, you've managed to find quite a lot of those opportunities for yourself. So what have those teaching experiences looked like? Well, how, how did you go about attaining them? Sure. Yeah. So the two main ones that I would mention are I've been part of a program at Harvard called Embedded Ethics, and that's a partnership between the philosophy department and the computer science department. And the way that works is that they have a team of philosophy postdocs, computer science postdocs, a faculty member, and then in my year, four graduate students who were uh, the sort of teaching fellows. And what you did is you embedded ethics education directly into the computer science curriculum at Harvard. So you were assigned to a certain number of computer science courses. And for every course, your goal was to design a module, as we call them, which is one class session, a 75-minute class session worth of lecture, but also mostly activity for the students. And your module was supposed to be as closely related as possible to the content of that particular computer science class. So even if it's you know, a class about hardware design or something like that, you have to find the ethical issues of that. So you're not just teaching broadly theory or even practical ethics theory, you're really starting from what they're learning and, and what they already care about. And you're embedding moral reasoning into their into the classes they're already taking. So I did that. Um, and then at MIT, I did a sort of very differently structured program, but also targeted at ethics of STEM or ethics of technology. And that was a certain class called experiential ethics. And it was designed so that students would take that class alongside some kind of internship or research experience. And the class would help them think about the ethics of whatever they were doing in their research or their internship. So I found these teaching opportunities, I think, basically just through word of mouth from older graduate students and from sort of calls for applications that came out through our department listserv. And um, with those classes, I mean, because they sound so interesting, you know, Lewis and I are doing tutorials where we just kind of teach the subjects that we're sort of like, you know, we're teaching practical ethics and subjects like that. And obviously, you know, there's an aspect of it that's like sort of relevant to the practical world. But I take it you're, as you said, embedding the ethics. You're trying to like get them to think about it in every issue that they do. I mean, because we're not computer scientists, so we're not, you know, doing uh, that sort of kind of work. But did you find it uh, difficult or was there anything kind of or sort of uniquely interesting about doing ethics in that embedded way as opposed to, you know, I guess teaching? philosophers just genuinely you know just regular normative ethics or practical ethics yeah absolutely i mean so i'm also not a computer scientist so one of the main challenges is just understanding enough about what they're doing in the class to really add something of value so an example of that is that i i taught a module for a class on differential privacy which is a technique that's being used to protect the privacy of individuals whose data is in really large data sets and the idea is if you have a large enough data set, then you can inject sort of noise, you can change some of the data without losing the accuracy of the overall statistics of the sort of population level statistics, and thereby, in some ways, protect the privacy of the people whose data is included in the data set. So it, you know, it took me quite some time to understand what was going on with differential privacy to a high enough level that I could really add something of value to their their discussions about 
privacy, the value of privacy, the extent to which differential privacy techniques protect people's privacy and all that. So what's really good about the program is that they have these computer science postdocs in the room with you and they're assigned to help you with your courses. And so their job is sort of to understand what's going on in the courses well enough to help you understand what you need to know. So it's really this this team-based effort. The other challenge of this kind of work that I've realized over time is really just that your goal is entirely different, or at least the way I think about it, your goal is entirely different. So when you're in a philosophy classroom, TAing, let's say for a philosophy class, your goal, even if the class is about practical ethics, will often not be to get people to be better people. (laughs) Like your goal is not, you're not there teaching the class or as a TA. Again, some people will disagree with this. Maybe some people when they're teaching moral philosophy classes in a philosophy department, they do consider themselves to be trying to make people better people or trying to make them act better, or make them more virtuous. But I think most people aren't thinking about it like that, or at least a large part of it is just being done for the value of philosophy, whatever that is. And so when you're in these other contexts, your goal really explicitly is to try to get, in this case, computer science students to make ethically better decisions throughout the rest of their life. And so the goal of the teaching is just, I feel entirely different. Um, So it's kind of two different activities as I see it. Yeah, I see. Well, just before we um, finish today, you've spoken about some fantastic opportunities that you've got throughout your PhD, whether it be as a visiting student, whether it be these extra teaching opportunities as well. I'm sure we can all agree that as PhD students, um, sadly, rejections are also something that is part and parcel of everyday life in academia. And I gather that you've been working on something to help us deal with this. So can you tell (laughs) us a little bit about that? Sure, yes. Um, So I believe you're referring to the punch cards. Yes. So my friend Leah Pearson and I, she was another a fellow fellow at the National Institutes of Health Bioethics Department. And now she's in an MD PhD program here. And so yes, the two of us have teamed together and we have a, a line of punch cards. And the idea is to exchange these punch cards with your friends. And when you get to 10 punches, you buy each other an ice cream or a cocktail or some other kind of reward that you agree on. And there are different ones. So one of them is getting rejected from things. (laughs) So as you get rejected, you acquire your punches and then you get a little reward. And then another one of them um, is saying no to things, which is actually the original one, uh, which was because both of us as PhD students have found ourselves overcommitting to things and not having time to do the things that are, are really most important. And so, yeah, a little extra motivation to say no to things and then a little extra cushion for getting rejected from things. (laughs) And and where can any interested listeners find these punch cards? So they can find them on an Etsy shop that I run. So I separately run a little illustration business where I make sort of cards and prints and stickers. So I have an Etsy shop and uh, we sell them on there. And I should say the proceeds from the cards, not the other things on the shop, but the cards go to give directly. So the Etsy shop is called Sophie Holland Art. Fantastic. Well, Sophie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. <laughs>